Hello, listeners. My name is Rhonda Morris, and I'm the Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer at Chevron. Chevron is proud to sponsor the Lead from the Heart podcast. I am here with my colleague, Marissa Badenhorst, who is the Vice President of our Health, Safety, and Environment organization. Marissa will share a short story about a leader whose simple and kind act had a long-lasting influence on her career and how she leads others. Thank you, Rhonda. I had the privilege to work with and for some great leaders in Chevron over my 24 years with the company. Leaders that are thoughtful, considerate, courageous, authentic, and also that are willing to challenge their team members. Take a chance on them, invest in them, and help them set aspirational goals and coach and mentor to achieve those goals. One story I can share is from earlier in my career. I have done a number of fairly similar leadership roles in operations. I went to my supervisor and told him I wanted to apply for another similar role, but bigger responsibility in a different country. That is what I thought I needed to continue to grow and challenge myself and advance. My supervisor, however, came to me with a different proposal to take a totally different type of role that'll put me out of my comfort zone and truly challenge me to deliver results in a different way. He proceeded to talk to me about why that's a good idea and also committed to help me succeed. I took the leap of faith and on reflection, so did he. He continued to challenge me and my new team to deliver excellent results, but always with the knowledge that he's there to support, remove barriers, and give me freedom to act and drive for the outcomes. That experience has shaped who I am as a leader today. Have high aspirations for your team members. Help them grow and lead in different ways. And be willing to take a chance on people and back it up with the support and mentoring that will allow them to be successful and make a step change in their careers. So to all the leaders out there that are taking a chance on your people and allowing them to grow exponentially, here's to you. And now, on to the show. Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. My guest today is Andrew McAfee. His book that we're about to discuss was named by both The Economist and Forbes magazine as one of the best books of 2023. And the Financial Times featured it on its monthly list of the best business books to read. Former Google chairman Eric Schmidt calls it, quote, a handbook for disruptors. The book is called The Geek Way, The Radical Mindset That Drives Extraordinary Results, and it explains how a bunch of geeks iterated and experimented until they came up with a better way to run an organization. As we might all have wildly different interpretations of what it means to be a geek, Andrew defines it as a perennially curious person, one who's not afraid to tackle hard problems and embrace unconventional solutions. As you can imagine, in the world of technology organizations, ones that are incredibly innovative and on the cutting edge, there are many geeky employees willing to chew on problems longer than the rest of us in order to solve a problem that's eating at them. And according to Andrew, an assemblage of Silicon Valley geeks decided to take on the challenge of identifying a more effective way of running and leading an organization, technology-oriented or not. As Andrew describes it, the geek way is rather untraditional. It's not deferential to experts, fond of planning and process, afraid of mistakes, or obsessed with winning. Not a bad start if you ask me. What the geeks have created as a replacement is a new culture based around four norms, science, ownership, speed, 
and openness. As a quick overview, speed means that organizations implement ideas quickly and then iterate tied to what they learn. Ownership means letting employees own their jobs with less constant direction from the top. Science means decisions are made tied to data, not anyone's opinions. And openness conveys a willingness, a desire to be informed by what other people have to say. According to Andrew, when all four norms are in place, a culture emerges that is freewheeling, fast-moving, egalitarian, evidence-driven, argumentative, and autonomous. And the reason it works much better than our traditional methods is because it taps into humanity's superpower, which is our ability to cooperate intensely and learn rapidly. It's seriously hard to argue against any of the geek's conclusions, and it's exactly why I invited Andrew to dive more deeply into his book. I'm hoping our discussion challenges a lot of your own assumptions about how best to lead a team in an organization. And Andrew, by the way, himself is a rather brilliant guy. He earned two Masters of Science and two Bachelor of Science degrees at MIT. Oh, and don't let me forget his PhD from the Harvard Business School where he once taught. Today, he's the Principal Research Scientist at the MIT Sloan School of Management. I now hope you're really intrigued by Andrew's work. My goal for the next hour is to drill down into all the details of the four aspects of the geek way, just to see if there are any holes in the overall philosophy. And with that, let me welcome you to the podcast, Andrew McAfee. Well, thank you for having me. Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation and we'll get right to it. As a, I'll just call this a very simplistic summary of your thesis. You believe the geeks working in what we loosely call the tech space have come up with a far better way of running companies. So I thought the best way to start this off is to say, tell us how you define geek, like what is a geek? Yeah. And why geeks felt compelled in any way to go in search of an optimal workplace culture. And then from there, we'll get into what the actual elements of the culture are. But I think the big picture is really helpful as we get started. Great. So I needed a label for a phenomenon because I became convinced, like you just said, that there was a better way to run a company out there. And as we'll talk about, it originated primarily on the West Coast, primarily in Silicon Valley. But it was a thing. It was this model, this new and improved way of doing things that needed a label. And I didn't quite know what the label was. And my book agent, Raphael Sagalin, uh, Rafe, has this eagle eye. And he said, in a previous book, you wrote a couple paragraphs about what you labeled with Eric Brynjolfsson, about what you labeled a geeky leadership style. He said, that is something. Uh, first of all, it's an interesting idea, and there needs to be a book about it. Second of all, that word has not been claimed in your world, Andy, in the world of thinking about business and management and organizations. That means you can grab that word and use it to mean what you want. And I thought that was great advice. I also think it's the right word because a lot of the people who I learned from when I was researching the book and who I interviewed and who I've talked to over the years, they meet the old-fashioned definition of a geek, somebody who's way too into computer. That characterizes a lot of the founders of the companies that I've been interested in for a long time. But I wanted to broaden that word out 
And in recent decades, that word has been broadened out. It's got a broader meaning than just computer nerd now. A geek is somebody who I think has two characteristics. First of all, they get obsessed with the hard problem, and they're willing to go as deep as they need to to try to find solutions to this challenge, to this problem out there. That used to be writing good computer code. Now it is learning about Star Trek or knowing a bunch about wine or being the CEO and founder of a company. They're willing to go deep. They get obsessed. The second characteristic is if what they come up with is pretty far outside the mainstream, the geeks don't care. They're not reflexively contrarian, but if what they come up with, if what they think the answer is, is pretty far from the status quo or far from the mainstream, they don't care. They're willing to be, as Jeff Bezos says, misunderstood for long periods of time. So that's a long definition. Here's a short one. For me, a geek is an obsessive maverick about anything. And the geeks that I got interested in are the ones who were obsessive mavericks about this extremely hard challenge of running and growing a company. So when I saw the title, I think I probably had a better understanding of what the word geek meant, aligned to what you just described. But I was also thinking that it's also like historically not been, there have been, let's just say, not so many positive associations with being a geek, like they're weirdos or they're nocturnal or they're abnormal. Yeah. And you're characterizing geeks. I think this is really important as we get started here that as an MIT researcher that you're saying, hey, we've mischaracterized them. Or if you're characterizing them this way, you're misunderstanding the importance of how informed they are, how normal, quote unquote, they are, and how compelling they are in terms of how they've pursued this. And you're exactly right. That word started as an insult. It comes from Germanic languages, geek does, and it was originally used to refer to a fool or a crazy person. And like you probably know, the first broad use of the word geek in English was for these freaks who would appear in circuses and there'd be a guy in a pit doing kind of disgusting things like biting the heads off live chickens. That was the geek in the circus show. Mm. And then by the 80s for on a journey that I don't quite know, it started to be used to refer to these young, mainly males who were way too into computers. And it was still kind of an insult. But in the decades since then, the word geek has broadened out. And now it's kind of a term of grudging admiration or praise. And Mark, like you know, to geek out is no longer an insult. It means you're just going deep on something or, holy cow, that person is a serious wine geek. That's actually praise. So as I say, the word has broadened out and it felt to me like exactly the right word to describe this population and this phenomenon that I was interested in. So I haven't talked to anybody who says, you're describing me as a geek and my company as a geek company. How dare you insult me like that? People don't look at the word that way anymore. That's fantastic. Seriously, <laughs> you tapped into an understanding of geek history that I would not have known you would have known. And so, But I think it gives us greater clarity here on going forward and how we build this conversation. So effectively, as you lay out, the geek way, if you will, is a product of what you describe as four basic values. Yep. So I'll name them. Speed, ownership, science, and openness. So... Let me give our audience a quick overview of these four values, and then we're going to discuss them in detail. So the first one is speed, and you mean companies implement ideas quickly. They learn more by iteration than by sitting in endless planning meetings. Two, ownership means you're actually 
you're empowering people. You're letting people own the job they perform rather than be directed at the top or from the top. Science means something a little bit more than that term normally implies, which is really about responding to data and to what is truth in the moment versus people's opinions of what might be the truth. And finally, openness conveys a willingness or a desire to be informed by what other people have to say, like you're giving people voice. So those are the four. So that we're consistent starting with speed. Mm -hmm. Tell us how each value is differentiated from traditional organizational leadership. I think that's really important. How each value plays out in geek-run companies. And then maybe one brilliant illustrative story that explains how these are in play in, in organizations that you've studied. Well, I can't guarantee brilliant, but I'll tell a bunch of stories. <laughs> we'll all be the judge. Yeah, okay, fine. Your audience can judge the brilliant part. But I want to <laughs> offer one small correction first. You described these four things as values. And that's kind of a word that I was walking around with or guiding principles or something. And I have a friend who's a very, very smart guy. His name's Arez Yoeli. He co-wrote a wonderful book called Hidden Games, which makes game theory both accessible and lively and useful to us normal human beings. And I was talking with E, I call him E, about this book that I was writing. And I was going on about speed and science and openness and ownership. And he was, what are those? I'm like, well, they're things, they're values, they're practices. I was floundering around all over the place. And he goes, well, are they norms? And I said, oh, mm. oh thank you, man. Mm. Thank mm. you. That is exactly the right God word. <laughs> God, yeah, God bless you. I didn't make him a co-author. I'm not an idiot, but I did, no, I did thank right. him in the but, book. But he's getting a little love here, and that's great. He's getting not as much love as he deserves. He's been super important for the book. But that is exactly the right word because a norm is, in language of talking about human cultures, norm has a really precise definition. It's not squishy at all. A norm is a thing, a behavior. A practice where if you don't follow it, the people around you will bring you in line. In other words, it is expected of you. And if you don't do it, you're going to experience some community policing. Not that the boss is going to come down and yell at you. That might happen. That might not happen. But the people around you will let you know that you're not doing the right thing. And one of the things I learned researching the book is that human groups have these incredibly effective ways of letting members know when they're out of line and bringing them back into line. Mainly, it's different kinds of social punishment. We could go on and on about that. But that's what a norm is. A norm is a thing that the environment, the human environment around you expects out of you. And I'm like, great. That was a, a huge kind of eureka moment for the book because then I could talk about these four things in terms of norms and the way the community reinforces them, expects them, and why they're so sticky. Norms are pretty durable. So that's kind of where I started. And you wanted to talk about speed first, right? I do, but I have to go down this road with you. Go, go. I remember going to Google once. I was spent the day there. I was writing an article for Fast Company and spent the day with all their talent management people. And there was a public relations person that was taking me from meeting to meeting. And she was describing the fact that, and this was probably eight or nine years ago, that the company was growing rapidly and the people were coming in and they didn't understand the culture. Yeah. And the people who had been there for a while would actually sort of, you know, pat people on the back and go, you know, that wasn't very googly. So Exactly. Right. To this day, they use that word all the time. Yeah. That wasn't super googly. 
So give me another example of social punishment. I'm sure my audience is intrigued by this. The main social punishment that we have is exclusion, is the cold shoulder. Every different flavor of cold shoulder. You know that glance you get when you've done something wrong or suddenly you're not getting invited to as many meetings or you wonder why nobody wants to have lunch with you. Think about all the different flavors of ostracism or social exclusion. And then as you're going through them, think about yourself. All of those feel really bad, bizarrely bad. And for me, the key to understand all of this is this central insight that we human beings are the most social species on the planet. We're much more social than any other vertebrate. We're even more social than ants and termites and bees with the really social insects. We cooperate in huge numbers with people who we are not related to. We are unique on the planet, unique in that respect. One thing I talk about in the book is that we're so social, we can't survive on our own. Mark, you can't start fire on your own. I can't start fire on my own. We need fire to cook our food. Humans can't exist on raw, unprepared food. And you and I are not smart enough to figure out how to do that one basic thing that will keep us alive. We need groups. As a result, exclusion, any flavor of exclusion from the group is intensely unpleasant and painful for us. I've read and I believe that what we've actually done is hijacked the mammalian pain system and put it to use for social exclusion, for ostracism, for following norms. We humans are really, really good at that. Not all of us all the time, but in general, holy cow, do we follow the community because we're so social that social exclusion is so unbelievably painful to us. So that's what norms are. And they get communicated and followed in explicit ways and implicit ways and subtle ways and not so subtle ways. And we stay in line with our communities for the most part, or we go find a new one. That's great. So back to speed. One of my favorite interviews was with Will Marshall, who is the CEO of Planet. And they make these very cool cube satellites in large numbers that orbit the Earth every day and scan our planet every day. And then they sell the scans and the data to all kinds of customers. And Will got started at NASA. He was a scientist at NASA for a bunch of years. And I was going on, I I wanted to talk to him primarily about speed. And I was talking about the great virtues of iterating quickly and, you know, not planning so much. And Will said, hold on, hold on. You have to understand in the world that I live in, in (laughs) putting satellites up into space, you can't just wing it. You have to do a lot of upfront planning to be successful at systems engineering. And he said, I'm intensely grateful because at NASA, I got a lot of training in systems engineering and the amount of very, very detailed planning that you have to do before you launch a satellite. And Will said, look, you can't take this software writing approach of, hey, let's sling some code. And if it doesn't work, we're going to sling some more code. He says, if you launch the satellite willy nilly and find out you didn't put the radio on it, you can't bring the satellite back. You have to do a bunch of upfront planning. But then Will said, I became convinced that NASA, where I was working in the space industry in general, they had become too fond of that really elaborate upfront planning before anything gets done. And having astronauts lose their lives is incredibly, incredibly bad. And that has influenced NASA's culture. But Will started to say, wait a minute, we're not risking any lives here. We're launching a satellite. And in the world that we live in now, those satellites can be cheaper. We've got off-the-shelf components. Maybe we don't need to go down to seven nines of reliability and go far down every contingency path. Maybe we can shorten the upfront planning 
and increase the rate at which we try stuff. And they started to do that. All based on your conversation he went down this road? This was based on us going back and forth, but he really checked me and he said, look, there is a minimum amount of upfront planning that you have to do in any complicated effort, especially probably systems engineering and space stuff. There's a minimum amount of planning and going below that is a terrible idea. However, Continuing to plan after that minimum is probably also a bad idea, and most organizations are too fond of planning. Will said that was certainly the case at NASA, so some colleagues of his and him got some support from the brass at NASA, and they went off and they said, we think we can build a satellite. We can we can go launch a satellite and land it on the moon, not for a billion dollars, which was kind of the back of the envelope budget at the time. He said, I think we can do it for under $100 million, and NASA said, you're nuts, but they had some cover from the and said, hey, like, go try something. So they went off and they built the hover test facility for on the order of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that's apparently one of the hardest parts of it. They brought the brass around and the NASA brass said, well, you've kind of done the hard bit for less than half a million dollars. Okay, fine. Here's a satellite budget. Go do it. And they launched a satellite, landed it on the moon for about $80 million. And they used off-the-shelf parts. So it was a lot cheaper. And they tried a bunch of stuff and they figured out what worked. So they achieved this order of magnitude improvement in cost, and they were kind of just getting warmed up because then they said, you know, wait a minute. Will held up his smartphone to me on the Zoom window, and he said, this thing costs about $500, let's say. A communication satellite costs about $500 million right now. And Will said, what are those extra six zeros doing for us. Mm. And so he and his colleagues said, hey, we're going to strap a smartphone to a rocket and send it into space. And they almost got fired for it, but they eventually got permission for it. And they did it. And they had the phone send down its signals and they got people running around to go grab the signals and eat the packets and email them back to NASA. And they stitched together the first image taken with a phone from space. And at that point, they said, okay, look, the space industry, the incumbent space industry is going about this in the wrong way. Because what we need to do is grab all these cheap off-the-shelf components that have dropped in price because of the smartphone war. And the bill of materials for a phone and a communication satellite has about 90% overlap. Let's go try to make them cheap. And a central part of Planet's approach to making satellites cheap and making them more powerful over time is trying something new. They launch about every three months and on every one of their launches, they've got an experiment. They've got a new radio or a new sensor or a new camera. And if that experiment comes back thumbs up, then they propagate that in every one of their satellites on the next launch, three months hence, has that new and upgraded equipment. So they're just iterating. They have a faster clock speed, a faster cadence than that of the incumbent space industry where launches are measured in three years would be very fast cadence. Planet is now doing that kind of stuff in three months. And it's just an example of the benefits of speed. And speed for me doesn't mean velocity. It's pace of iteration or cadence or clock speed. Okay, so punctuate this for our audience workplace managers at all levels, what can they take from this? You're planning too much. Danny Kahneman, who I quote a bunch of times in the mm -hmm. book, says, we have a very general planning fallacy. We are super overconfident in our ability to plan out exactly what's going to happen, to see the future, to navigate a path through it. Reality isn't nice to that overconfidence. Reality gets in the way. And it's not that our plans are useless. It's not that planning is a fruitless exercise, but we're way too confident. We do too much of it. It's too elaborate. And it keeps on getting upset by reality. 
So the business geeks have really taken that insight to heart. And there's a, a lot of talk about your minimum viable product in the world of startups and high tech. Well, I want to introduce another very closely related concept, which is the minimum viable plan. What's the smallest amount of upfront work you need to do before you then go start trying stuff, before you spin up the iteration cycle? And that iteration cycle is pretty easy to define. It's do something, get it out there in front of reality, in front of mother nature, in front of a customer, get the feedback that you need to figure out if what you were doing was correct or not, and then do the next version, the next cycle as quickly as possible. It's that pace of iteration that I think determines how quickly you learn and how much you learn. And this is a really underappreciated benefit. It lowers the amount of time you can go on kidding yourself about how awesome your plan is. It just gets you out of the business of kidding yourself, which I think is fundamentally important because we humans kid ourselves for a living. Mm-hmm. Or praying over it, right? It's not working, but it's going to work, right? Yeah. yeah. It's going to work, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we deceive ourselves. We deceive the other people on a project with us. Yeah. Like, I know we're a little behind right now, team, right. but I'm going to go to the meeting. I'm going to say we're on time because we all know that we can get back on track, right? We say that to ourselves all yep. the time. Yep. And we usually can't. This is why so many complicated efforts are late or really disappointing and really behind schedule. Mark, there's a great book that you probably know of called How Big Things Get Done, I think, that came out in 2020, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where the authors say, look, the way big, complicated efforts actually get done anywhere close to on time, on budget, is that they have a lot of iteration, there's a lot of generations, and there's a lot of opportunities to learn. There's lots of models. And the geeks have taken that to heart. So they look at these really elaborate planning processes that the incumbents of the industrial era have, and they say, nope, we're going to plan less and iterate more. And so the, the very concrete takeaway for me is start doing stuff at an uncomfortably early stage. Just start doing stuff. So how do you, just one final question related to speed before we move on. You mentioned customers. So if you're introducing a new product or a new system or a new service, you're impacting people. So my bank just got acquired and the new bank is one of the largest banks in America and they've got an online system, just their, you know, check your balance, do a transfer. It's the worst system I've ever, it's unbelievably bad. And I'm thinking, are they like just, trying to get this thing better. So it would be nice if they communicated that this is a new system. In this case, it isn't, but we're working through it and we're looking for your feedback. So they partner with their customers as opposed to like, I dread going on this system. So if you're introducing something new under the speed, speed is in motive. How do you keep from frustrating your customers? Exactly, because what you just described is a really lousy approach. Pissing off your main body of customers is generally not great business. So there are a couple things that it feels like that bank could have done. Number one is do a bunch more high-fidelity, valid internal testing before they rolled it out to you. Why are they rolling out a lousy user experience to you? That tells me something about their internal environment. Number two they could say to a subset of the customers, hey, look, are you willing to be part of this trial for whatever set of benefits or what you know, whatever mm-hmm, reason? Mm-hmm. Will you come be part of our trial? We'd like your help to make this thing better and then iterate with those people over a period of time. But this mass deployment of lousy software, this is still a thing that goes on. This is what happens when I think when you haven't embraced the new way of getting big, complicated things done, you wind up with that kind of massive customer fail. Okay, let's go on to ownership. 
ownership for me has a lot of close synonyms, right? It's devolving authority. It's pushing responsibility and authority downward while simultaneously giving people what they need to do their job. And here's the even more difficult part, getting out of their way. And that getting out of the way takes all kinds of forms. Some of them obvious, some of them not so obvious. One of them is second-guessing all the team's decisions, just having a super micromanaging boss. We can all agree that's a pretty bad idea. Here's something that I used to think was a really good idea, and now I think it's actually a deeply bad idea. When I started my career in business academia in the mid-90s, Mark, I think you were around back then. Remember how popular business process reengineering was, right? Mm-hmm. A huge book, Reengineering the Corporation, it sparked this mm-hmm. movement to write down all the important cross-functional processes that needed to happen in a company and then embed them in software and make sure all the touch points were identified and just have this very tightly orchestrated company. That sounded like a great idea, and a lot of companies went down that path. There is minimum viable process that you need. I absolutely accept that. However, what you're doing by inviting all that process in and and having more of it and thinking it's great is you're inviting bureaucracy. Rigidity. You are inviting rigidity. You're inviting sclerosis. You're inviting all kinds of people to take advantage of the opportunity to get involved in your work and gatekeep or have the authority to give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down on it. It's the opposite of autonomy and actual responsibility and actual ownership. One of the weirdest things I learned writing the book is how the geeks are resistant to that mid-90s idea of orchestration and tight process. They really want to have a company where we need a different label. Modular is a pretty good one. I want a bunch of self-organized, self-contained units. I want them to be very clear on what they're doing and why they're doing it. And then, man, my job is to design a company that gets out of their way and stays out of their way and lets them try to accomplish their goals and hit their numbers over time. Now, that's easy to say, and there are some really great examples that I found and I put in the book, but that human desire to be involved in somebody else's work and to gain status that way, that is the thing that we have to watch out for. And that's why I think the geeks are so adamant about ownership. So, you know, during COVID, when COVID first happened and people were deployed to their homes to work for the first time three years ago, One of the things that I know you're aware of is that the number of meetings like tripled that people were having, right? And so the best explanation that I had for that, well, I mean, there's one that seems logical, which is, hey, I'm not seeing people, so let's meet, let's schedule something in order to accomplish that, which makes sense in that world. But the better explanation that I got was that managers felt like, well, what am I here for? So it was their own egos that was driving this, this lack of security in themselves around, hey, I don't need to have constant interaction with people to manage people effectively. And so what they were doing was creating more meetings to replace the constant inspection that they were doing or walking around like a rooster kind of a thing. So what advice do you have for managers to make sure that they give people the ownership that you're describing? I have advice for people even higher up in the organization. Make sure you don't have that kind of management ethos. Make sure that you're trimming back that constantly encroaching desire to get involved in somebody else's work. That can come from the top. That can come from the side. It can come from kind of any vector in the company. And there are many different flavors of bureaucracy in this kind of meddling approach to somebody's business. 
I was talking to Sebastian Thrun, who's kind of a legendary, both computer scientist, geek, one of the pioneers of autonomous vehicles, and a really good entrepreneur as well. And Sebastian had this great rant that he went on when he and I were talking. He said, I tell my teams, you guys have to stop so much all the communicating. You have to stop running things up and down the flagpole all the time. Because he says, you take that team's work, this nice tight piece of work that they've done. And by the time you run it up and then back down the management hierarchy, everybody at every level wants to add something to it, wants to add their mark to it or make sure that everybody knows that they were involved in it. And by the time it comes back down to the team, it's unrecognizable. They can't even see their own work in it anymore. So Sebastian, I think, was articulating this very modular approach to getting stuff done. You're the team. That's why we've given you this important part of the project. Your job is to go get it done. Here's how we're going to measure it. Here's how we're going to figure out how to get you the resources that you need. But man, my job is to not try to second guess or meddle or be involved in your work. My job is to let you go do your work. Market's a really different philosophy of management. No, I mean, yeah. And this is the one of the four that I thought, okay, this is not a high hurdle. This is a pole vault for a lot of people, right? I mean, because you're you feel like your job as a manager is to do exactly the things that Sebastian is saying he didn't want to be doing, which is like, I hired you to do this job. You're competent in doing the job. Go do the job. Go do the job. Right. Go do the job. And if you really need me, come to me. But otherwise, green lights for as long as you can see. And my job is to coach you and bring you along. Part of my job is to make sure that what you're doing is aligned with the overall strategy of the group and the company. That's a really, really important managerial function. I've heard middle managers called the transmission belts of an organization. I love that metaphor, right? (laughs) Part of their job is to make sure that the alignment exists. And look, in any company that I'm aware of, there's politics, there's turf. You need people who can help you with all that stuff. But this kind of micromanaging, medley approach to running all of your teams A lot of the geeks that I talk to who I learned so much from, they want to get out of that business. One of the most amazing stories I learned was how Amazon's initial approach was a very, very top-down interventionist approach toward innovation. And in the late 90s, Bezos and his executive, his leadership team, realized that it wasn't working, that it was gumming everything up. Everybody hated the, hey, do I have permission to innovate process that they had set up? And it was turning into a nightmare. And that was the birth of AWS, because they said, look, if we want to get out of that business, we have to modularize the technology stack so that our teams don't need to go beg permission from IT to get the resources that they need. We also need to modularize the organizational stack, the management approach that we have here. They pulled it off. And there's a guy named Steve Yeager, who was an engineer at Amazon during that time. And he wrote these hilarious blog posts. He said, you have to understand Jeff Bezos is a control freak. Jeff Bezos makes ordinary control freaks look like stoned (laughs) hippies. This is actually a phrase that he used. And he said, so this pivot, this was 180, this is like a 720 degree pivot for the initial approach that Bezos and Amazon had. And they pulled it off because if I'm paraphrasing, what Bezos and Amazon really wanted to do was win, was grow, was satisfy and delight their customers. And if plan A, this very interventionist micromanagey approach wasn't working, then let's walk completely away from that. I love that story. I do too. I also want to amplify a word you used, you still need to coach people. So people listening to this are like, wait a minute, this is like the wild, wild west out here. People do whatever they No, you're constantly guiding them, but you're guiding them in a proactive way saying, these are my expectations. This is how it needs to be. But you're not reiterating that 
when they've gone and done the work. You're letting people follow that plan. And if they don't do the work properly, it's time to intervene and figure out what happened and do your job of coaching and bringing people along. All these things come up all of the time. But this modular approach where you take the team and you try to encapsulate it so that it's not getting encroached on by the rest of the organization all the time. I think this is a really powerful idea. And I want to stress how far away it is from the playbook of the industrial era that I sang from and that I taught from when I was a young academic. Years ago, I was a regional manager in a financial institution, large American bank. And there was a person who had just been promoted into that level. And it was, Mm. these are large, large regions and billions of dollars of assets and so forth. So it was a big job. And this new regional manager was hiring a branch manager. Mm. And so he called up his boss, who was my boss, and said, hey, Mike, I got three candidates for you. And I want you to interview them for me before I make my final decision. So Mike said, do you get a like regular commission check? Like, do you get an incentive check every month? And the regional manager <laughs> said, yes, I do. Yeah. And he goes, when it comes next, could you stick it in the mail and give it to me? And of course, the guy's like, well, but, but why? You know, and he goes, well, if I'm going to do your job, <laughs> then send me your pay. So I thought that was really sort of complete cherry on the top of the story you're telling here. Yeah, I love that. I had a great interview with Carl Bass, who used to run Autodesk, and he's been around the Valley just a long time, and I've learned a ton from him over the years. And he said, when I started as the CEO of Autodesk, I thought my job was to make the tough calls in the company. I thought it was a huge part of my job as the CEO. Mm -hmm. He said, by the end of my time there, I realized that I was making almost no decisions in a year. That was actually not my job. There were a very, very small number that were appropriate to decide at my level. And that couldn't be delegated. But man, they were not very many. And my job was to set up a company that didn't operate like we better. See what Carl says about this. Where was he spending his time, just out of curiosity? He was dealing with external constituencies. He was repping the company on Wall Street. He was probably calling on big customers. He was probably doing a ton of coaching. I doubt he was bored, right? I haven't come across very many bored CEOs of decent-sized companies, but what he wasn't doing was this flavor of, this very natural flavor of micromanaging and getting involved in second-guessing. Let's go to science. (laughs) You brought up data and analysis as part of science, which is absolutely true. I don't think it's actually the heart of what's going on here. Science, and there's a wonderful book that I read called The Knowledge Machine that opened my eyes to what's actually going on here. Science is a nonstop argument. Scientists argue about the nature of reality in the universe, right? What's going on here? How does evolution work? How does inheritance work? We argue about these things all the time. The reason that we're converging, the reason we make progress, and we're arguing not about the same things for centuries on end, but we argue about more and more precise things, is that there's a ground rule for how we're going to settle the arguments. And the ground rule is not seniority or charisma, or who's got the bigger lab, or who's wearing a Nobel Prize medal around there, none of those things. The argument is settled by evidence. In other words, you believe A, I believe B. Now, what we're going to try to agree on is the test, the evidence, that will distinguish between A and B. We're going to go run that test. And if it turns out to be B, I forget if that was me or not, then I win this round of the argument, and eventually you're going to acknowledge that. But what we're not going to do is sit around and argue only from first principles or only from moral authority or any of this other stuff. you got to bring receipts. you got to bring evidence. And when I think about the business world, the parallels are so tight, right? We have to keep growing 
and being profitable and successful and in a very, very turbulent environment full of new entrants, nothing is static. There's a nonstop debate, discussion, argument to be had about how we're going to move forward and be successful here. It's a nonstop argument. What's the ground rule for settling those arguments? And wherever possible, I suggest the ground rule should be bring receipts, bring evidence. We're going to argue about that evidence nonstop, but we're going to make progress based on that ground rule for settling the debates. So forgive me, I read so much, I forget if you mentioned this or if I read it somewhere else, but this notion of the hippo, which is the highest paid person in the room. The highest paid person's opinion. Opinion, right? right? Yes. So you don't necessarily have to be the CEO, you could be the team manager, right? If you're the highest paid person. So speak to the audience and give them your best advice on moving away from feeling compelled to have the final say. Oh, that's hard. I I, I don't know how to do that. I want to have the final say all the time. I, I, that, <laughs> We're going to have to end me, this interview here. No, no, no. But I think this is really important. I'm, I'm really glad you brought this up. We humans want to be right. Of course we do. Being right is great for us as a member of this ultra social species, right? People defer to us more often when we're right. We rise up, we have an easier time attracting mates and allies and all these things. Being right is really important. Being confident that you are right is really important for us. Therefore, we're chronically overconfident. We're built so that being proven to be wrong feels kind of lousy, actually. It's another kind of pain out there. I don't like it, you don't like it. Science says tough. If you're going to win this game of science, you have to tolerate being wrong once in a while, and you better get good, not at being persuasive or charismatic or arguing from whatever moral position that you hold, but you better get good at bringing evidence because that's how we're going to settle things. So what I love about this way of looking at it is that science channels our desire to be right. You think you're right? Great. You're overconfident? Great. Go get evidence. You're going to come to the table for the next round, and you're going to bring your evidence, and you're going to be confident that you're right. Awesome. But we're not going to take your word for it. You're going to have to defend it. You're going to have to argue about it. You're going to have to use evidence. I tell the story in the book about Google's first design head. Google realized they needed to get good at design, you know, in the in the first decade of the century. They hired a guy named Doug Bowman to be their first head of design. And he stuck around for a while and liked lots, many aspects of his job. But he left the company in 2009 because he said, look, I can't work this way. Literally, you imagine this guy in frustration. I can't work this way. He basically said, I can't work this way because everybody's asking me to justify all of my design decisions with evidence. What shade of blue should this be? Should it be three, four, or five pixels wide? He said, that's not what design is to me. Design to me is I have the kind of eye and the kind of taste that you want here. Great. You hired me for this. Listen to me. I don't want to have to just run an A-B test and justify everything. And Google said, thank you for your contributions. Good luck with the rest of your career. We're going to continue to make sure that one of the norms at this company is the bring the evidence norm, not the listen to the hippo norm. And Google has said, look, we think that getting a shade of blue right has actually earned us on the order of hundreds of millions of dollars of extra revenue per year, given the scale of company that we're at. We have an infrastructure. The first A-B test was done at Google, and it's expanded like crazy since then. We have an entire infrastructure for science, for running experiments. We get together once in a while and argue about it. Are we pointing this infrastructure at the right things or not? But holy cow, we make decisions based on evidence whenever we can. So this, just to pin this down here, 
I think I misunderstood this when I read it, and now you said it, and it's much more compelling story to me, which <laughs> is that this head of design basically misread the room. It's like, hey, you may think this shade of blue is the best from a design standpoint, but we're going to go out and confirm it because it matters. Exactly. In other words, the hippo is not the final word. The highest paid person's opinion is not the final word. We still want a head of design to probably pay that person very handsomely, but the conversation doesn't end with the O, with the opinion part. The conversation ends with the results of the A-B test. Turns out people like a little bit darker blue than you thought they wanted. It sounds mechanistic, but it's not always. Science is an incredibly human process, and it's subject to all the biases and all the weirdness that goes on with human beings. But the reason it works is because of this ground rule. Fine, we're going to argue. Bring receipts. Bring your evidence. We're going to have arguments based on that. I quote both Ben Horowitz and Mark Andreessen in the chapter about science and how they say, look, this other guy... He still pisses me off. We've been working together for more than 20 years. <laughs> he still pisses me off, mainly because he's right so often. Yeah, he gets it right. <laughs> he gets it right, and I want to be right. And we yell at each other, and we have this argumentative relationship. That doesn't mean we're not friends. We're not colleagues. We don't trust each other. They founded Andreessen Horowitz together. But that approach is still at the heart of what they try to do. And Andreessen said – when he was giving advice to people, he said, look, go find a company where you can speak truth to power, where you can bring the evidence and the hippo is not going to eat you alive. He said, if you don't have that kind of company, life is too short to deal with hippos all day, every day. I'm paraphrasing. No, he's, you've done this throughout this entire conversation, but you just know what points to really make clear and this idea of truth to power. You know, I'm, I'm listening to this. I'm thinking, okay, these guys are business partners, but in a traditional workplace, sometimes we end up working with people who I'm just, you know, apologize for saying this up front, where we just think that person's just an asshole. Yeah. Like that person is right. That person is a jerk. That person's very difficult. Again, apologies for anybody. <laughs> this yeah, is the lead from the hard the podcast. Out there, right? right? You know, but the thing is, is that how do you get to in yourself where you can go to a meeting and have to defend and lose and not hate the person that just made you lose? I think you do that. I think norms come in incredibly handy here because when I started out as a doctoral student, I did my doctorate in business at Harvard Business School. And like in almost every academic environment that I'm familiar with, there are seminars. There's like a weekly seminar and someone comes in and presents their work and then they get the snot beat out of them by everybody else in the room. That's the point. The point is not, oh, wow, God, that's amazing. You're so intelligent. Let me sit here and praise you. It's taking apart the work at every level from every direction possible. A room full of very smart people devoted to picking apart your work. There's a part of that that's deeply unpleasant, but if you watch a healthy academic seminar unfold, you don't see so much overt asshole behavior, right? You see people trying to offer comments in a spirit of constructive criticism. You see people responding to it. Oh yeah, that's a great idea. And they take notes and they say, okay, I'm going to go run that, that analysis and whatnot. And you start to watch this norm of an evidence-based argument that is not characterized by domineering behavior. And you start to internalize that. And you learn that if you are belittling, if you're a jerk, especially as young faculty in a seminar like that, mm, there could be some ostracism coming your way, maybe for your entire career. So again, norms are incredibly powerful and they can get us past our innate tendencies to react with hostility and defensiveness when somebody says that we're wrong. Or, and this is another one that we really got to watch out for, as you rise up, 
your opportunities to be domineering over other human beings are going to go up and it is going to be tempting to take those opportunities. Every social vertebrate, birds and mammals, have a status hierarchy. That hierarchy is based on who can beat the snot out of whom. Yeah, I'm paraphrasing, mm-hmm. right? But it is a dominance mm-hmm. hierarchy. And what the mm-hmm. dom- alpha male, alpha, what the alpha does not do is, is, you know, take a lot of challenges in stride. That's not their business. They beat the snot out of the challenger until they can't anymore. Now, to think that we've evolved past that is just dead flat wrong. We have this urge for dominance. We have this desire for it. When we get that power, we tend to use it. We tend to not like being challenged. There's a great phrase that says, I'm going to get it all wrong again, but it says something like, all people want to rule, but if they can't, then they want nobody to rule. I love that as a way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. But we've got to create an environment that amps down on that kind of dominant behavior and that style of arguing from status and does something different. Wonderful. Great. Terrific. This is just wonderful. So let's go to openness. Yeah. Openness is incredibly closely related and some level of it is necessary for science to work as well as it does. Instead of trying to define openness, let me give you a synonym and an antonym for it. A pretty close synonym is psychological safety, which is a concept that my former Harvard Business School colleague, Amy Edmondson, has been so wonderful and so articulate about for a long time. She's a three-time guest. She still ranks as our all-time favorite guest. Three-time guest, right? And I understand why you have her back. Yeah, duh, right? Because yeah. Amy's a complete rock star and, and right. a really a wonderful and a cool human being. But her work is an entire career trying to beat managers and organizations over the head about the importance of creating psychological safety, which we can define in all kinds of different ways. But this environment, and Amy's very clear, it is not an aspect of your personality, it is an aspect of the group level environment. It's a norm. And the norm is, are you comfortable? Is this an environment where you should feel comfortable speaking truth to power? Or is the bad stuff going to rain down on you if you even try to do that? Super hierarchical organizations have more trouble with psychological safety very often. More egalitarian ones have that more baked in. But a good synonym for openness is psychological safety. Now, here's a good antonym for it. And this gets to another aspect of this idea of openness. The opposite of openness is defensiveness. We humans, we have a very, very strong status quo bias. We want things to continue as they are for all kinds of reasons. That means if there's a threat to my idea, to my headcount, to my budget, to my turf, to these things that I, to this endowment that I have, holy cow, is my initial reaction going to be defensiveness? Just going to dig in your heels, never give an inch, never admit that you're wrong, and there's a scholar who Amy and I both respect a ton. I think she might have done her dissertation with him. And I I only knew him a tiny bit because it was at the end of his career. He's this wonderful guy named Chris Argyris. And what Chris Argyris did, he's the most underappreciated scholar of management that I think has ever had a career. And what Chris said is, look, the values that most of you are espousing are guaranteed to wind you up in a defensive posture, in this kind of horrid defensive crouch that most organizations go into. And he said, the values that you put out there all the time are win, take control, assume responsibility, and be responsible for an outcome. He said, win very often turns into don't ever lose. Take responsibility very often means don't ever give any responsibility up. And be responsible for an outcome means emphasize that outcome, whether or not it continues to be the best thing for the organization, you're still responsible for that outcome. So you're going to drive that way. You're going to go into the ground if necessary. That's the opposite 
a pivot. That's the opposite of any kind of humility. It's the opposite of ever saying, that's a good idea. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. We should go that way. I think about Jack Welch as kind of the paradigmatic industrial era CEO, right? One of his books was called Straight from the Gut. This is not a very science-y book title, right? <laughs> Another one was just called, his autobiography was just called Winning. There was Jack. There was one called Jack on Jack. And it just epitomized this approach that you saw it with him, with GE, with all these industrial era stalwarts. The way to manage your career and the way to rise up is to keep notching the victories. Man, think what that does to a person's willingness to say, yeah, man, we went down the wrong path there. I got it. Yeah, we're going to have to pivot. We're going to have to go in a different direction. Absolutely not. And so, look, the geeks want to win. The geeks want to grow. They want to succeed. These are ambitious people. But one of the huge insights, I think, that contributes to the geek way is that you are going to have to admit that you were wrong a lot. You're going to have to have a tolerance for failure. You're going to have to do some pretty big pivots. And that is an element of being a successful winning organization. And so they've moved away. They're trying hard to move away from this defensiveness. And they're trying to move to a posture of, I'm going to try super hard. And it's not all going to work. And that's okay. And that's not career death for you. And after it doesn't work, you're not going to keep insisting that it did. And you're not going to drive it into the ground. You're going to be willing to pivot. And you're going to be willing to kind of to say, hey, that didn't work. We're going to go in a different direction here. It's just a night and day difference in the guiding philosophy of the organization. This is wonderful because as I'm listening to you talk about Jack Welch, I mean, it became revealed that when I mean, there was an appetite for these red meat kinds of leaders that Jack <laughs> Welch embodied, yeah. right? And yeah. But then if you go back and look at the history all the manipulation and unethical behavior that went on in that organization in order to delve, you know, the shareholders, we did it again, you know, taking assets and selling them and buying yeah. them back, you know, all kinds of things that, that we actually explored on this podcast once with totally. some Wall Street Journal researchers, that what I'm hearing from you is that the geek way is to approach winning, but to do it the right way. Exactly. And to take kind of a longer term view of winning. I read one of the books that I think you're talking about. I read Lights Out, which is one of these histories of GE's decline and fall. Mm -hmm. And when Immelt was CEO, the authors of this book were explicit that there was not a market for hard news inside GE. Immelt, and I met him a few times, he was this relentlessly positive guy. He was a marketing guy. He was a sales guy. He was relentlessly positive. He was a charismatic dude, so it was catching. But mm, is he the guy that you brought the hard reality to and he wanted to have an open and honest, you know, non-defensive conversation about it? According to the authors of Lights Out, no, not really here. And so the instant you get into a situation where there's no market for hard news inside your company, you're already very, very far away from openness. And I love a sentence in one of Amazon's shareholder letters, one of Bezos's shareholder letters, where he essentially said, this is a few years ago, he said, I guarantee you, if we are not incubating multi-billion dollar failures inside Amazon right now, we are not innovating at the scale appropriate to our company. <laughs> yeah, I love that, right? Hey, hey guys, we, I, I don't know where they are, but we have multi-billion dollar failures going on inside this company. That's an atypical thing to put into a shareholder letter. It turns out Bezos was right, right? Because if you look at their entire approach to Alexa and Echo in the wake of generative AI, yeah, they spent billions and billions of dollars on that. And that money was not well spent, it turns out. 
Okay, has Amazon's share price tanked as a result? Not that I've seen, right? right? I love this very different, very geeky approach of when we iterate, when we try stuff, and if we are swinging for the fences, there are going to be failures. And as long as we learn, as long as we didn't tank the entire company, that is literally part of doing business. And pretending otherwise gets you into this like horrible defensive posture, which is slow poison. Andrew, we're going to take a quick break here and move into what we call the heartbeat round. Generally, we do this every single episode and we want to know more about our guests personally. So I'm going to ask you several questions, but this time we want them to be quick, instinctive in a heartbeat. Are you game? I'm game. Let's do it. Okay. Greatest new insight you specifically gained by writing your book. We are the most social creatures on the planet. A trait you most admire in other people. I'm going to do two, curiosity and humility. One book of any genre you wish everyone in the world would read. The visual display of quantitative information. You'll never look at a graph the same way again. Wow. Your synonym for the word heart. Mm. Kindness. Love it. No one's ever used kindness in the context of heart, at least not for their first instinctive answer. That's great. Quality that derails the most leadership careers. Overconfidence. Prediction about the future you're pretty certain will come true. It's going to be better for most of us, and we're not going to believe that fact. Wow. The quality you consider most essential to your success. (laughs) Fear of failure. (laughs) Okay. Drives a lot of us. What's the subject you believe all managers would be wise to bone up on? Economics 101. Greatest piece of advice you've ever received? Seek the company of those who search for truth. Run from those who have found it. Something you'd really like to see changed in the world. Nuclear power, more of it. Newspaper or magazine you never miss reading. Twitter. Skill improvement you're working on right now. Always working on writing. You can work on that forever and ever. And in the physical world, I'm trying to become a competent kiteboarder. Your personal hero. Among living people, probably a Stuart Brand, because I think he's the coolest living American and he has had more good ideas and been part of more important 20th century movements than anybody else I know. And who is he? Stuart Brand is the founder of the Whole Earth Catalog. Mm -hmm. He was behind some of the early online electronic networks. He took a bunch of LSD back when it was legal to do so. And he's just been at this nexus of the ideas and the ecosystems and the good stuff that has come out primarily of Northern California. I think he's a central figure there. And finally, one thing you can't live without. Reading. Great. Love that. All right. These are wonderful answers. Thanks for going through this with me. I love them. So I have two questions I really want to ask you, and we're running out of time here. So I just want to get to these. One is sort of, I think I kind of told you at the beginning, this is the fundamental question for me, which is if geeks at multiple companies all arrived at the same four values, I guess really what I'm asking is, is that, like, how do you know geeks came up with this? And was it like something that they all had the same epiphany? And I think the other component of this is persuade us why this works in all organizations and not just Silicon Valley. I have an easier time with the second question. The first one is tough. And I'm not trying to portray myself as a business historian or a historian about West Coast technology companies. I think there's a lot of really interesting work to be done on that. But I do think that, that there were a bunch of people who came to the West Coast, particularly Northern California, especially in the wake of the web. A lot of them had been around for the hard drive era and the PC era. But as you remember, when the web happened, 
holy Toledo, was there this explosion of activity in the Silicon Valley ecosystem. So a ton of people showed up and they started trying to build companies. And a lot of them had had underwhelming results earlier in their careers. Reed Hastings, for example, the Netflix co-founder and co-CEO for a long time, had actually taken a company public before. And by his own estimate, he did a mediocre job at it. And he kind of ran it into mediocrity. And I think his story is pretty typical. When a lot of people founded their company in the web era or the web 2.0 era, a lot of them, because they were geeks, said, okay, what do I need to do differently in order to have a better outcome here? What was wrong about the previous company that I was involved in or the previous one that I founded? If I threw out that industrial era playbook, what would I actually be doing differently? And I think there was this critical mass of people with that inherently very, very geeky approach to tackling hard challenges. And they iterated and they experimented and they found out, for example, that listening to hippos is a lousy idea. So the argumentativeness is striking and the extent to which they're data-driven and data-centric is pretty striking too. A lot of them said that this planning-heavy approach to managing complex projects, this just doesn't work. We got to do something different. And most business revolutions are hard to trace to one point in time. I think we can pretty precisely trace the modern era of speed to a weekend in Snowbird, Utah in early 2001, where 17 computer programmers got together because they were so frustrated with this monolithic way that code was being written. And they walked away from that with the Agile Manifesto. That was actually where it came mm -hmm. from. So this plan a little, iterate a lot approach, this is a 21st century phenomenon in its modern form, and we can trace it to there. So the geeks were absolutely on top of that. And I think what happened is you got this critical mass of people, they're, they're trying to solve the same kinds of challenges, and they're coming via discussion, via people moving from organization to organization. They settled on not an entirely consistent, but a fairly consistent set of norms that I think are the heart of the geek way. Now, your second question, does this work outside Silicon Valley? I think you mean, does this work outside of tech? Because you don't believe this. That's what water. I mean. Yeah, that is okay. what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Not and, geographically. No. Yeah. So let me try to articulate why I believe that it absolutely does work no matter what sector you find yourself in. Every sector that I'm familiar with has to manage big, complicated projects. And that's different if you're JP Morgan than if you're Domino's Pizza. The nature of the project is very, very different, but you got to manage big, complicated efforts. You have to make decisions accurately. Your batting average for making a good decision or a prediction, the higher that batting average is, the higher that slugging percentage is, the better off you're going to be. And unless you're a complete asshole, you really do want to tap into the good ideas of the people throughout your organization. I don't know of anybody who thinks that the entire company is just there to execute their lone brilliance, right? So you've got to get these things done. You've got to manage big efforts. You've got to increase your slugging percentage on tough decisions and predictions. And you want a higher pace of innovation, of agility, of something like that. I think the geek way is the best way that we have so far to do those things to get your projects done closer to on time and on budget and without alienating your customers, like what happened with you and your bank. The norm of science is the best way to increase your slugging percentage with decisions and predictions. And norms of openness are the best way to actually get ideas from throughout your company to stop things from going off course and to keep things strong over time. So I have trouble thinking of a part of the economy that doesn't want to do those things so I have trouble thinking of a part of the economy that would not benefit from getting geekier. Hence the book. Hence the book. <laughs>
hey, listen, you're wonderful. You're a brilliant guy. And you pack a lot of information in the words that you use and just your ability to articulate the ideas that you wrote about. So I'm incredibly impressed. I'm sure my audience is as well. And on behalf of them and myself, thank you so very much for coming on. This has been great. It's been a blast. Thank you for asking such fantastic questions. I can tell this is stuff you've thought a lot about too. Very much so. And very much aligned. I mean, I, I would never have imagined that these ideas would surface from what you're describing as geeks, yeah. but it's just huge confirmation for what we've been talking about for the last five years here. So beautiful. Thank you. All right, Mark. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thank you, sir. Bye. I'll leave you now with one of my favorite quotes from world-famous anthropologist, Dr. Jane Goodall. She says, I truly believe that when people live with head and heart in harmony, then that's when we'll attain our true human potential. I want to thank the extraordinary team that brings you our show, Mr. Ken Boynton, Randy Yant, Gary Finnessy, Anna Boynton, and my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz. If you're interested in spreading our message, please pick up a copy of my book, Lead from the Heart, wherever books are sold, and or tell a friend about our podcast. We'd be so grateful if you did both. And finally, never forget that when you lead from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Thank you.